Let us pray. Gracious God, we thank you for your gracious love to us. We thank you that we can cry out to you in the midst of whatever we're experiencing in this day, the joys, the difficulties, the monotony, the routine, whatever it very well may be that we find ourselves in the midst of this day, we thank you that you intercede on our behalf, that our soul cries out to you and the spirit groans within us. We pray that we would listen carefully to your spirit as you speak to us in and through your word. Uh, draw us to conviction. Draw us to the comfort of your spirit. Draw us to the consolation that, that someone might need to receive in and through your word, even today, at the, the joy of Father's Day and the, the difficulty that it might bring for that person that's grieving the loss of the physical presence of a father, even in their life, even this morning. Open our hearts to your word. It's in your name we pray. Amen. If you have a copy of God's word, I'm going to invite you to turn with me to James chapter 4 this morning. James chapter 4, verses 1 through 10. Happy Father's Day to you this morning. Uh, I tell you, one of the great joys of, of my life is to, to be a father, uh, to be a father to Hayden, Luke, and, and Jonathan. I was able to to uh, my, my dad's probably watching this service here this morning, and so I know like many of you who don't live in close proximity to your dad, you're, you're calling on Father's Day, and you're trying to get, get your dad on the phone, or maybe you are here this morning, and your earthly father is uh, with his heavenly father right now in heaven, and there is a sense of a bittersweet emotion that comes with Father's Day where you look back, thankful for the legacy of your father, thankful for the uh, way that he invested in your life. But there, there's an ache that really will not be fulfilled this side of heaven. And we're uh, reminded of the hope that we have in our father in heaven who gives us that kind of relationship with our earthly father for an eternity uh, if we profess faith in Christ as our Savior and Lord. So wherever you find yourself on this holiday. I do just want to say happy Father's Day to you this morning. Uh, one of the things that Danielle and I did this past week was that we were in Dallas, Texas for the Southern Baptist Convention. And there's a lot of things that I could say about the Southern Baptist Convention, and, and I'm not going to go into all of it. If you keep up with those kinds of things, the Southern Baptist Convention has been in the news for a variety of, of things, and I have opinions about all of those things that you might have seen on USA Today or CNN and certainly would welcome any of those conversations. But one of the primary reasons, not the only reason, we, we go and we enjoy the time of worship, we enjoy the time of, of hearing the Word of God preached, but one of the primary reasons that we attend the Southern Baptist Convention is because when we go to Dallas like this last week, we run into countless people that are very close to us. I mean, so it's sort of this big reunion with 10,000 folks, and out of those 10,000 people, they're former professors that I studied under and that Danielle had, so we get to reconnect with those folks. They're, they're people that we served alongside of in different contexts and different places that we've lived. They're great friends of ours. I mean, literally guys that I rushed with in college that are now serving the Lord that we reconnect uh, this past week. They're 
closest friends of ours uh, were not able to be there. And it was, this is probably like the first year in a decade that we didn't spend a night or two eating with them and getting to catch up. And there was something really missing about that. I hope you have those kinds of friends, I guess is the point. I hope you have friends that you can kind of pick up with and, and, and go out to eat with and say, you remember that time? And, and it just automatically brings you back to that place. I, I hope you have friends that, that bring out uh, the best in you that you enjoy being with. I hope you have that kind of friend. This side of heaven, we're not going to have 10, 15, 20 of those kinds of friends, but I hope hope you have a handful of those kinds of friends. And it's one of the reasons that we go to something like the Southern Baptist Convention is the relationships that we have. James in chapter 4 is going to talk about friendship. He's going to talk about how friends shape us in, in very, very real ways. Now, he's talking about the power of friendship, but it's not specific friends that he's talking about. He's not talking about earthly friendships as much as he's talking about how our spiritual friendship matters for our soul. The very thesis of James chapter 4, verses 1 through 10 is found in verse 4. Read it with me. It's a strong word, but it is going to set the context for what we're going to talk about this morning. You adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. These are strong words here. Spiritually, James is speaking to a group of believers that he is saying have misplaced their friendship. And and their heart's desire is found in the world. And he goes from addressing them like he does for the previous three chapters as brothers to you adulterous people. There's, there's a sense of, of a, a singe that, that James gives to the original recipients of this letter by, by calling them out in the strongest possible language, saying that you have, you have left your friendship with God and you've traded it in for a pale imitation, and that is friendship with the world. Now, I want you to notice with me in verses 1 through 10 this morning a few principles. And the first principle that I want you to see is the fruit of misplaced friendship. The fruit of misplaced friendship. Galatians chapter 5 talks about the fruit of the Spirit. Love and joy and peace and patience and so forth. Now, there, there is a corollary, opposite. There's an antonym of the fruit of the Spirit. And it, it is sour and sold fruit here. It is spoiled fruit that is being described here. And there's two descriptions of the spoiled fruit of uh, enmity with God and friendship with the world. And one is conflict with others. Look with me in verses 1 through 2 in James chapter 4. What causes quarrels? And what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder, you covet, and you cannot obtain. So you fight and quarrel, you do not have because you do not ask. Notice the chaotic description here. I mean, we've got brawling going on here. We've got quarreling going on. We've got confusion going on. We've got chaos going on in a horizontal way. We have brothers and sisters fighting with each other. There's the repetition of fighting and quarreling, fighting and quarreling. Verse 2, verse 1 here. There's even the strong uh, accusation of murder in verse 2. It's most likely that James isn't talking about a, a literal homicide in that first century church that James is addressing here, those first century Christians, but he's probably drawing upon his half-brother's teaching in the Sermon on the Mount 
You remember this in Matthew chapter 5 where Jesus talks about how you can literally not be guilty of homicide. You can not be guilty of premeditated murder, but you can have the spirit of murder that lives inside of you with the anger of your heart to a brother or to a sister, to a friend or to a co-worker. Uh, you might not literally pull a trigger. You might not literally plan murder. But according to Jesus in Matthew chapter 5, you can have the spirit of anger and call one rockin' fool. I mean, you foolish person and have, have the judgment of God upon you in your soul and in your heart here. This is the fruit of misplaced friendship. When we are friends with the world, there is a spoiled fruit that occurs, and that is conflict with those that we come in contact with, but there's another, there's another fruit of that, and that is conflict with God. Look with me in verses three through five. You ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, coming back to the thesis of verse four, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God, Or do you suppose that it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? Notice how verse 3 and verse 2 are joining together. There is conflict with others because there's conflict with God. What what is the source of the conflict with God? In verse 2, James says, we do not have because we do not ask. There is a lack when there is a a friendship that we have with the world, it shows up in our lack of prayer. We, we become prayerless people when our passions are misplaced. There is a correlation between your prayer life and your friendship with the world. The, the more that we give ourselves to the world, the, the less that we give ourselves to the word and the less that we give ourselves to God in prayer here. We do not have because we do not ask. Then he moves to verse three and he says, even when you pray, when you have friendship with the world, you're gonna pray in this selfish way. You're gonna, you're gonna pray where I becomes the most important part of your prayer. Me becomes the most important part of your prayer. So we end up, in James's words, inverting the Lord's prayer. There's so much of what James says here that's really drawing upon the Sermon on the Mount. And you remember the Lord's Prayer where Jesus taught us, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And there's a sense when we have our friendship with the world that we begin to pray, My kingdom come, my will be done. And James says that when we are the center of our prayer life, when it's me and I at the center, and we we treat God like this divine vending machine that we put in a quarter for our prayer, and then we say, be too, and we expect God to be this vending machine that just gives us what we want, and we have this long list of wants, and that's how we treat God in prayer. We move past adoration. We move past confession. We move past thanksgiving, and we just move to God just being this, this existence for our benefit. James says this is a fruit of misplaced friendship. That this is the fruit of, of being in close proximity and close contact to the word, I mean to the world instead of the word. And the analogy that he draws upon in verse five here is a very vivid one. He says in verse four and verse five, you adulterous people, 
Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? The analogy is, is the analogy of the Old Testament. We can't help but to think of Hosea in the Old Testament who is told by God to marry Gomer. And Gomer is unfaithful at every point in their relationship. And, and Hosea reaches out to her again and again, but she is still unfaithful. And in the midst of her infidelity, God says to Hosea, this is what it's like to be me to the Israelites. I've given myself to you in love and in relationship, and and you have committed, uh, you as a nation, you've committed infidelity toward me. You're spiritually unfaithful to me here. Now, how, how are we unfaithful? And what are we unfaithful to? James says, that the mistress of every believer who feels the, the siren call of sin is a, a mistress of the world. Now, the world is this great seducer, and the world isn't the mountains, it's not the streams, it's not the uh, skies above us, but rather it's the accolades and the achievements that are not about his will, not about his way. It is the pleasures and pursuits that are counter to his will and his way. The, the world is utilized in the New Testament oftentimes to talk about uh, an agenda that is set up against God's plan and against God's way. The world is something that God loves, as we see in John 3, 16, for God so loved the world, and it's talking about all of humanity, but there's also a way in the New Testament where the world is talked about as this agenda that is set up to oppose the kingdom of God and his will and his way, and we see this. We see this in our heart, how we can become worldly Christians. I I really benefited from a professor at Calvin College who's a philosophy professor, and his name is J.K. Smith, and he has a, has a series of books that are really helpful, but one of the more recent books, this kind of this popularization of, of what he's talking about, this uh, agenda that he's talking about, is that you are what you love. You are what you love. And in the book, he talks about cultural liturgies, and that is kind of a fancy way to say that oftentimes, over a period of our life, we become... Uh, acclimated, we, we become shaped, not just by what we think, but by while we do, what we do habitually and what we give ourselves day in and day out. And so if we give ourselves day in and day out to a consumeristic philosophy and a materialistic worldview, then we become materialistic people. We become people that bow down to consumerism. If we give ourselves to our pleasures, this is who we are. So we think Oh, I love God, but in actuality, what we do again and again and again is shaping us into people who love the world. If you love self more than your Savior, you are a selfish person. I mean, this is how we habituate ourselves. If we love money more than our master, we become materialistic people. This is what gets into the very depth of who we are here. And what James says is God is jealous for our affections. He's a, je- he's a jealous God. Now, he's not jealous in the way that a 14-year-old who has his first girlfriend and he comes back from summer break and all of a sudden he sees the new guy who's like the quarterback who moves in from far out and all of a sudden he's a little bit nervous that his girlfriend is going to be attracted. That's not, that's not the jealousy of God. The jealousy of God is one in which that he has this passion for our affection because he understands that only in him can we truly be satisfied. Only in him, because he is all-sufficient, all-powerful, all-knowing, he is the best because he is God. 
And so when we give our best to these, these false things, we, we begin to see how the Ten Commandments ring true in Exodus chapter 20, verse 5. I am the Lord, and I am a what? A jealous God. A jealous God. Because he desires our affections. He desires our worship. He desires our desire. We look in this passage here, and we see the fruit of misplaced Friendship in James chapter 4, verses 1 through 5, but we also see the source of our friendship with God. Look with me in verse 6 of James chapter 4. But he gives more grace. Let me just say that again. But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. I have to think that B U T is the most comforting conjunction in all of the Bible. There's this sense where for these first five verses, we feel the weight. I mean, we look into the mirror of the first five verses, and all of us in this room understand the pull of the world upon our hearts. All of us understand that we are at war within ourselves, and we know what it's like to hear the siren song of sin calling to us, and and we go to that. All of us feel that, but... Verse 6, but he gives more grace. A comforting conjunction. I mean, Paul says it this way in Ephesians chapter 2, we were dead in our trespasses and sins, but God, being rich in his mercy because of his great love, made us alive together with Christ. I mean, aren't you thankful for the but gods in your life and in my life? Because we all have first five verses that need to be met by the verse six of this conjunction because we feel the pull of sin. We feel the pull of the world. And what James is saying is the gift of conviction And even the gift of repentance is not your work, but it is through his grace. This this is so vitally important. Because a a book like James can just beat you up. Especially Christians with a Holy Spirit-inspired kind of conscience. You can read the James chapter 4 verses 1 through 5, and you could say, man, I've just got to do better. I've got to grit my teeth. I've got to stop being so sinful. And then what you end up doing is you have this long laundry list of do, 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 do. I need to do better. I need to do less. I need to stop doing this. I need to start doing this. And and of course, there is a sense in which James is saying that. But what ends up happening is, is you inadvertently put all the focus on you, but you are the problem. I am the problem. We've got to look outside, and it's this temptation to skip over verse 6, because we're going to get to verses 7 through 10, and they're like non-imperatives. And so you you could read this kind of passage. You have verse 5, stop being this adulterous people, start doing all of these things, non-imperatives, and then you skip over verse 6, and what you end up doing is, is you lose the fuel for repentance. You miss the grace of God in the midst of even your conviction and your turning away from the world and to him. Only he can empower this in your life. In your strength, you will always go back to the world. In your strength, you will always go back to sin. But he gives more grace. Even your repentance is a gift. Even your conviction 
is a gift. Even your turning from sin is a gift. It isn't you being a better person. It is you relying upon the Spirit of God in you, the grace of God that fuels you for repentance and even conviction. This is how Paul would say it in Philippians chapter 2 as he kind of gives a corollary understanding of this. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Work it out. Do this. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. I mean, there's a paradox to this. James is saying, Paul is saying, stop doing this, turn to me, work out your salvation. Why? How can you work out your salvation? Because I'm working in you. I'm fueling you. I'm empowering you to be able to do the very thing I command you to do. Aren't you thankful for these comforting conjunctions? Okay, so it's Father's Day. I don't know, maybe I was seven, maybe I was eight, maybe I was nine. I just don't have this great memory of all the Father's Day gifts that I gave my dad. But I remember eight years old, nine years old, that I, along with my brothers, I'm the oldest, and I had a brother that was three years behind me and another brother that was six years behind me. So sort of the oldest. And I remember at eight or nine getting my dad a John Wayne clock. I mean, it was one of these, it was like a picture clock, and John Wayne was on it, and we we picked this out, and we bought it for him, and we gave it to him. And I remember this. And one of the raids I remember it is for a long time he, he had that in this kind of uh, pool room that he has in his house. And I would look at that, and I'd say, I remember buying that clock for my dad. But here's the truth of that. Uh, we bought that clock. In quotes, we bought that clock. Uh, the way we bought that clock was, as my mom said, hey, boys, you understand that Father's Day is coming up. She got us in the car. She drove us to the Metro Center Mall in Jackson, Mississippi. We walked through. We got to one of these places, and she said, these are some things that your dad might like. And so we pulled out. We had some quarters, and we had some pennies, and maybe had some loose dollars, and we piled it up there. My mom, she, she filled in the majority of the, of the money. And then she, then she piled us back into the vehicle, and then she got home, and then she wrapped that gift, and then she set it up to where we could give that to my father, and so we gave the gift. We bought the gift, but we didn't do anything, did we? All that we did was empowered by someone that had the ability and the foresight and the knowledge and the, uh, the material wealth to be able to undergird the, the feeble initiative that we had at eight or nine. And, and this is an uh, incomplete illustration by every stretch of the imagination. But, but you get to something when we look at what God is calling us to do. There is a sense that our gift, our gift of repentance, our gift of, of, of conviction is always something that God is doing in us. He is, he's always enabling us to take those next steps. Now, with this grace-filled foundation, you can hear not only the source of our friendship with God, not only the fruit of misplaced friendship, but you can hear the path to friendship with God. See, th this passage, verses 7 through 10, it will overpower you without this grace-filled foundation. Now, look what he says in verse 7. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. 
Resist the devil and he'll flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. You Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. They're non-commands here. They're non-imperatives. And they're in the original language of the New Testament. They're in a tense that is calling. And there's a sense in which there are exclamation points that, that are behind every one of these. They require immediate response. There is an immediate pathway to friendship with God in this. Now, there's not a sequential order to this. It isn't that we submit ourselves, then we resist, and then we draw near, and then we cleanse, and then we purify, and then we mourn and weep. There isn't a sense in this like one, two, three, four, five. But in repentance, in turning from the world and turning to the word, from turning from the world and turning to God, this is a description of that path. There is a sense in which we are submitting ourselves to God in repentance. There is a sense in which we submit to God completely in repentance. God is calling for our single-mindedness. He is calling for us to give our affections to him and not be double-minded and double-souled where we give our affections to the world and we give our affections to God. So we submit to God completely in repentance. We resist Satan forcefully in repentance. There is a sense in which we have this narrative in the Christian life that we are just little individuals who are pulled by Satan's whims and desires, and we have no control. You remember the old cliche, you know, the devil made me do it. But we need to be reminded, as James tells us here, that when we uh, submit to God completely, When we resist Satan, he must flee. There's a sense in which greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. You are not powerless to the temptations of Satan in your life. God is calling us in James to submit to God completely, resist Satan forcefully, pursue purity wholeheartedly in these verses here. In Jewish worship in the Old Testament, there was a sense in which they would ceremonially wash their hands as a symbolic gesture of the, of the washing of sin away. There, You have uh, Catholic brothers and sisters that you know, uh, family members that you know. Maybe you grew up in Catholicism, and, and you walk into the service, and, and you see uh, water that you can literally wash your hands in that sense of symbolically saying, I'm, I'm coming to you clean today. And so James is calling us symbolically to purify our hearts. So pursue purity wholeheartedly, resist Satan forcefully, submit to God completely, and treat sin seriously. We'll end with this. Repentance isn't just thank you God that you forgive me in the midst of my sin. But if you notice here, James is calling us in this passage to mourn over our sin, to weep over our sin. Mourn, weep, let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. This sounds so depressing. Sounds like the opposite of the victorious Christian life. This, this sounds like the opposite of your best life now. I mean, God is calling us through James's words to turn our joy to gloom, quit laughing and start mourning. What, what does this mean? Especially in this chipper and everybody smile kind of Christianity that we live in, this bubblegum kind of Christianity of the 21st century. 
What is James calling us to? Well, he's calling us to ultimately treat sin seriously, understanding that our sin that so easily entangles us, it it sent Christ to the cross. And there is a sense in which James is saying for all of us that are in this room that sin is serious business. And it isn't something that that we should just have this nonchalant attitude about, but rather it should break our heart because it breaks the heart of our Savior. This This is ultimately what he bled for. This is ultimately what he died for. So when we turn back to the world, there is a Holy Spirit inspired conviction fueled by the grace of God that calls us to weep over sin and to grieve over the ways that our hearts turn to the world instead of turning to him. So as we see in this passage here, friendships matter. There's a fruit of misplaced friendship. There's the source of friendship with God. And finally, this morning, there is a path to friendship with God, fueled by the grace of God. This draws us to thanksgiving to his table. Let us pray.